you would, turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and you follow along as I read. First Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, but which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was stowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Titled the message this morning, The Verification of the Gospel. The Verification of the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. Father, I pray as we would consider your word this morning, and allow the Spirit of God, who is the author of this precious book, to search our hearts, to see if there's verification of the gospel living and dwelling in us. I pray that you would just speak, have your will and way, you be glorified, help me as I preach, give ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as one studies the biblical record and the accounts of the life-changing power of the gospel in men and women in the Bible and compares it with modern professions of faith, it raises questions of the reality of many professions today. As we consider this passage this morning, may we consider and compare ourselves with the truth of the Word of God by which we will be judged. And so, let us make a case, make our own case, as to the verification of the gospel in us. But again, by the Word of God. I want to notice four things, and I have some sub-points. First of all, the declaration of the gospel. The declaration of the gospel in verses 1 through 4, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and they raised again, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 
The word declare means to make known or to call to one's mind as though what is made known may have escaped one. So Paul's reminding them again or recalling this to their minds, declaring to them what I have preached unto you. And we see this often in the Bible. For example, 1 John 1, 3, the Apostle John said, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, he was proclaiming the glad tidings, the good news. He's declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ of God, the one that had died for our sins, that He was the chosen, the acceptable sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. Not, any, just, not just any sacrifice will do. See, the sacrifice has to satisfy the holiness of God. It has to be a sacrifice without sin, without blemish. And of course, we see this in the Scriptures, recorded for us in the Scriptures, or according to the Scriptures, in Exodus chapter 12, at the, the, the first Passover. And when Moses spoke unto the children of Israel in Exodus 12, in verses 5 through 7, he says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. Ye shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. They shall take the blood of, uh, and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat. And so this, this was, a, this was a, a lamb without blemish. You might say it was a sanctified lamb or a chosen lamb or, or a set-apart lamb. He was taken out. He was separated from the rest of the sheep or the goats. It was a lamb without blemish. It was also a sacrificial lamb. Verses 6 and 7 says they were to, they were to kill it in the evening uh, in the 14th day of the same month. And, and they would take the blood of it and strike it on the side post and over the lentil of the Lord. And verse 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be for you for a token upon the houses wherein you are. And when I see the blood, I pass over you. You see, that lamb was sacrificed in their place. It was not only a sanctified lamb, it was a sacrificed lamb. In this course, lamb pictures our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who was slain for us, again, according to the Scriptures. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your feigned conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And of course he goes on in chapter 2 and verse 22 says, who did no sin. This was a this was a man, not a lamb, but a man without blemish, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He never spoke anything with ill intent or with a motive, ill motive in mind. You would say uh, he never spoke with a forked tongue. There was no guile found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5 says, You know, he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. He never sinned. There was never any sin in him. He cannot sin. Because he is the God-man. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the, the, the righteousness of God in him. And so Paul said, We declare unto you the gospel. The truth is, the, the glad tidings, that Jesus Christ died and was buried for our sins. But I want you to notice the second thing here, the accreditation of the gospel. As we consider the accreditation of the gospel, or the, you might say the authentication or the proof of the gospel. And I have two things I want to notice here. First of all, we have the accreditation of the scriptures. If you notice in verses 3 and 4 it says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, and notice this phrase, according to the scriptures. Then again in verse 4, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now when Paul's saying here, writing to the church at Corinth, and he's saying according to the scriptures, he's not, he's not saying according to the book of Romans. Because the book of Romans wasn't written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And he said all, everything that was done, everything that was done by Christ was according to the scriptures. It's in agreement with the Old Testament scriptures. They, all, they spoke of these things. In fact, go back to Luke chapter 24. Jesus spoke to his disciples concerning this truth on several occasions. And, and after his resurrection, remember when there was two on the road to Emmaus and they were talking about the things that had happened, how Jesus had been crucified and so forth. And then, and then they, someone said that, had been to the tomb, and he was not there, and, and an angel told him that he was resurrected. And they were sad, and they were talking about things, and Jesus joins them. He joins them. And he notices their, their sadness and so on, and they asked him why, and, and they said, well, you know, we thought it was he that should have been uh, redeemed Israel. And besides all this, this is the third day since these things were done, verse 21. And then in verse 25, he picks up and he says this. Then he said to them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded on them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he took them back to the Old Testament scriptures and, and showed them from the scriptures how that these things were going to take place. That he had had to suffer these things and enter into his glory. In John 1, John 1 and verse 45, Nathaniel spoke of this, or I'm sorry, Philip spoke of this, when he, was, when he told Nathaniel about Jesus, in, in verse 45, it says, And Philip find Nathaniel, and saith unto him, We have found him, and notice this, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about. Peter reminded the, the children of Israel in, in, uh, uh, in Jerusalem uh, in Acts chapter 3 and verses 20 to 23. Acts 3 verses 20 to 23 it says, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive unto the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet 
shall be destroyed from among the people. And Peter here is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verses 15 through 19. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 through 19 where Moses says this, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet like from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me. Unto him shall ye hearken according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God and Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command them, him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. You see, the Old Testament, we have the accreditation of the Scriptures verifying that this, this was going to come to pass. What Paul is writing about here was spoken of for centuries preceding this time. You know, Genesis 3.15 talks about the seed of the woman. And, of course, we know that he was born of a virgin. Isaiah prophesied about the virgin birth, and we know that that, that comes to pass in the New Testament. In Micah 5.2, it talks about that he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14, the virgin birth. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, Jesus goes into a synagogue, and he quotes from the, from the, 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 the book of Isaiah in chapter 61, and then he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. It's in Luke chapter 4 and verses 16 through 21. He, he says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. There was delivered unto him the book of Isaiah. When he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach this acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying to them, I am the one that will heal the broken heart. I am the one that will set the captives free. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. You know what their response was? They were filled with wrath. If you read it on the chapter, they, they, they take him out to, to, to heal headlong, intending to cast him down and kill him. But he simply walks through the midst of them and passes by. Because his hour had not yet come. Do we read all about all these things in the Old Testament? The betrayal. Uh, 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 Psalm 41.9 says, Yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Matthew 26.31, uh, again, uh, talks about the, the shepherd being smitten and, his, and, his, and the sheep being scattered. That was prophesied in Zechariah 13.7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the... Man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Matthew twenty seven thirty four says, They gave him vinegar to drink. Psalm sixty nine twenty one says, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. But Isaiah 53 is probably the most comprehensive prophecy of our Lord's sacrifice of himself. Now Isaiah 53 you can't help but see it speaks all of Christ. 
in, 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 in verse, uh, uh, and I'm going to just draw your attention to a couple of places. In verse 5 it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Ephesians tells us that he is our peace. Verse 6 says, All we sheep have turned, gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. This is the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when, when Philip joined himself to the chariot, and Philip said, you understand what you're reading? And he said, no, how can I except some man's guide me? And he preached to him Jesus, because that's who it's speaking about. See, we have the accreditation of the Scriptures. The Scriptures declared all these things before they ever came to pass. Verse, 11, uh, verse 10, 11 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make a soul an offering for sin. Jesus said, I, I lay down my life. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. You see, the sacrifice of Christ satisfied the righteousness and the holiness of God. Romans chapter 3 verses 24 through 26 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption of this Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, to the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. He was just in his death, but he's also just in justifying him which believeth in Jesus. See, God can justify a sinner on the basis of the, 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 the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And God was satisfied with that sacrifice. You see, we have the accreditation of the scriptures. If you want to look at some of the Old Testament prophecies, 44 here, typed out for you. There's some of these back there on the table. 44 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ are fulfilled in the New Testament. And there's many more. But we have the accreditation of the scriptures. Paul said it is according to the scriptures. But we also have, secondly, the accreditation of witnesses. Notice the verses 5 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain in this present, but some are followed asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. We have here indisputable evidence to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was seen by many people at different times. Verse 5 says he was seen of Cephas. That's Peter. Uh, and then, then verse 12 says of 500, not verse 12, then, then of the 12, I'm sorry, verse 5. And then verse 6 says of 500 at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present, of course the time of this writing. And, and then he said he was seen of James, and, and then of all the apostles. And then last, he was seen of me. Paul saw him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, on his way to arrest Christians. And the Lord revealed himself to him. See, these many witnesses cannot all be guilty of hallucinations. As some tried to say, they were just hallucinating, you know. 
They really didn't see a, a bodily Lord Jesus Christ. They just saw a ghost. No. There's many witnesses at many different times. You know, he was seen in different places and circumstances. Some in the garden. Some on the Maus Road, like we read in Luke chapter 24. He appeared in the upper room. Some he appeared on the seashore, John chapter 21. Some by day and some by night. And of course then Paul on the road to Damascus. Again, these add validity to the fact or the reality of his bodily resurrection. You know, the account of his resurrection was circulated and proclaimed to both Jew and Gentile while these many witnesses were alive, and it was, it was proclaimed without being disputed. In fact, look at Acts. Go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. You know, those that preached, and those that were preached this truth were willing to suffer, they were willing to die for the things they had seen and heard. They could not be bribed or threatened with persecution. You know, and the apostles not only said, we are eyewitnesses of these things, but notice in verse 22 of Acts, 20, of Acts 2 it says, Ye men of Israel, hear these, th- these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. You know, they didn't have an argument. There was no refuting what these men witnessed and what they testified to. I mean, they're standing before the potential enemies and saying, as ye yourselves also know. And they were not challenged or discredited about this fact. In his book, More Than a Carpenter, on page 57, Josh McDowell says this. A. N. Sherwin White, a classical historian, said this, quote, After personally trying to shatter the historicity and validity of the scriptures, I have come to the conclusion that they are historically trustworthy. If a person discards the Bible as unreliable in this sense, then he or she must discard almost all the literature of antiquity. One problem I constantly face is the desire and part of many people to apply one standard or test to secular literature and another to the Bible. We need to apply the same test with a literature under investigation of secular or religious. Having done this, I believe we can say the Bible is trustworthy and historically reliable in its witness about Jesus. Unquote. Dr. Clark Pinnock Professor of Systematic Theology at Regents College states, quote, There exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. An honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon irrational and anti-supernatural bias, unquote. These are not fundamentalist Christians. In fact, one of them set out to prove the Bible wrong. But if you put it to a forensic test, 
it's indisputable evidence. You see, we have, we have the accreditation of the scriptures. We have the accreditation of witnesses. I want you to notice the third thing, the verification of the gospel. In verses 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11, the Bible says this, For I am least of the apostles, and I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was spoke upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You know, here is living verification. Paul saying, here I am. Living proof as to the validity of the gospel. I am living proof. The validity of the truth that I proclaim. I am a changed man since I met the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. I have received him as my Lord and Savior, and now God has given me a love for everyone to hear the truth that transformed my life from a vicious, unloving, and hateful, persecuting Pharisee to a preacher of the gospel, praying for his enemies. You notice Paul speaks of himself in verses 8 and 9 as last and least. He said, I'm last and least. But his testimony is not just one eyewitness account or of a spectator, but a life-changing, world-changing event. Somebody said he came to Christ as Saul of Tarsus and went away as Paul the Apostle. He came as a persecutor, and went out a preacher of the gospel. He came a religious person and went away with a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He came hating and went away with the love of God in his heart. He came doubting and went away believing in the resurrected Lord. You see, believing in and receiving Christ's death and resurrection is not just a fact. It is a compelling force in the life of one who receives it. Verse 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly all. Notice, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He would say in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Philippians 1.21, he would say, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. He would write young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9 and said, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, and not according to our purpose, but for his purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. He would say, I have a divine purpose now for living. You see, his previous purpose was to satisfy the wants and the desires of the Pharisees and the high priest. Get rid of those Christians. But now he has a divine purpose, one given to him by God. A purpose that is out of this world. It's eternal. He has an eternal purpose. 
And that brings us to the fourth thing. Not only is there a declaration of the gospel and accreditation of the gospel, the verification of the gospel in Paul's own life, but there must be a reception of the gospel. If you notice again verses 1 and 2, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. You see, the gospel must be received. It must be received. There must be a reception of the gospel. The word received here in verse 1, it says it means to take, to receive something transmitted, to receive with the mind by the narrating of others or the instruction of teachers. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, and many of them as, that, as take or, 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 or receive with the mind by the transmission of, uh, of others, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. It must be received. And this receiving is a receiving of new life. Now, if you notice in verse 2, he says this again, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. If you keep in memory, unless you have believed in vain. What does that mean? Well, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, the Bible says this, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, which giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And the words lay hold there means to seize upon, to hold to, or struggle to obtain eternal life. Now, think a little bit with me at what Jesus said after the rich young ruler went away from him. What did Jesus say? It's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Paul said here to Timothy that he said, you need to warn the rich lest they be high-minded and trust in uncertain riches instead of in the living God. Who giveth us richly, God gives us riches to enjoy, not to trust in. Not trust in. And he said the rich need to be willing to communicate or to give of their riches so that they trust in the true salvation they lay hold of eternal life and not trust in their uncertain riches. You know, we've got to lay hold on eternal life. We've got to keep it in memory. What's all that mean? You know, we live in a country of wealth and affluence. Most of us, most everyone in our nation have all they need, more. And we don't need to rely on God for our daily bread. But along with that, we have a lot that have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof. In other words, they have a form of Christianity 
that's not changed their outlook on life, their desires, nor their passions. And according to the scriptures, that's not biblical salvation. The Apostle John, you know, when, when, you know, when, when, when uh, the Lord met, or when Saul of Tarsus met Jesus on the road to Damascus, his life was dramatically changed. Now, I grant not all of us were killing people, were arresting people, putting them in jail. But there was a change. In John 8, 31, the Bible says this, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. The word continue here again means of him who cleaves, holds fast to a thing. How often do people make professions and nothing changes in their life? And they continue on as life as usual. Let me tell you something. Salvation is not, I did that, I'm done, it's life as usual now. That's not salvation. That's not Bible salvation. When we get saved, we are given the life of God. Divine life. The spirit that dwells within us. That ought to bring about a change in life. In fact, let's define that word life. The word life, according to dictionary.com, means this. The condition that distinguishes organisms from inorganic, or inorganic objects and dead organisms being manifested by growth through metabolism, reproduction, and the power of adaptation to environment through changes originating internally. So again, salvation is called the new birth. It's called a birth. Jesus said, except a man be born again. And it's not a, I have done that, it's done, it's over, I'm all set, now I can get back to life as usual. No, the new birth gives us the life of God, God dwelling in us by His Spirit, and there will be a change that takes place in your life that originates from within, because that's where the Spirit of God dwells, and that's where He will manifest Himself. You know, something that has life grows. I mean, there's a couple of ladies here have life in the womb. It's growing. <laughs> it's showing, too. You know, and there's going to be little babies born. But we don't want to stay. We want them to stay little babies. What do we expect? We expect growth. We expect change. That's called life. If they don't grow, you know what they're going to do? They're going to die. They're going to die. If there's no growth, that means there's no life. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
So we're being justified. We've been declared righteous by God. So we have the life of God. It says in verse 3, And not only so, but with glory and tribulations also. You know, Paul didn't glory in tribulations. Saul of Tarsus didn't glory in tribulations. But Paul the apostle did. Saul of Tarsus didn't have patience. But Paul the apostle did. And Saul of Tarsus had no hope. But Paul the apostle had great hope. And verse 5 it says, And hope maketh not ashamed. He was not ashamed to preach the gospel to small or great. Because the love of God, he says, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. See, this came, this came from within. It came from within, Paul. God, he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. This new life originated from within, from his heart. The Spirit of God working in his heart. Because he had found new life. Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. See, there has to be a reception of this life. And when there's life, it's demonstrated by growth, by reproduction. By change that originates internally. Luther Burbank, he was an American botanist and horticulturist, was buried under a cedar of Lebanon tree in his garden at Santa Rosa. For he said, quote, I would like to feel that my strength was going into the strength of a tree, unquote. But it's not where we're buried, but how we live that will measure the contributions of our strength. One person said, quote, to live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to transfer one's influence worldwide. It is to live so that one never dies, unquote. So if you live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, living faithful to Him, your influence can be felt worldwide. By your prayers, by your giving. Take a look at that mission board back there. There's missionaries in Greenland. The first missionary ever in the history of the country of Greenland. And you and I have an investment in that by our prayers and by our giving. We have a missionary in Russia. We have a missionary in Taiwan. One in Portugal. You see, when you're involved in the work of God, you're involved, your influence becomes worldwide. 
and it also becomes eternal. It's not temporary. It's eternal. You know, is your interest in the work of God for souls of men real or genuine? Is there verification to it? Does it affect your mind, your time, your emotions, your finances? You know, what goes on here in the assembly of Lighthouse Baptist Church is of greater importance and of greater impact than anything else in your life. You know, your work in the city of Raleigh doesn't affect the world. It has some great impact, but does not affect the world. It doesn't go outside the state, really. But your mission's giving, your prayers, goes to the regions beyond. And it's an investment in eternal things. You see, it's a matter of life and death. So where is your interest? Is there verification? Are these the things that interest you? Has God brought about a change of desire and passion in your life to see the gospel go into the regions beyond and to your neighbors across the street? You have you received this life is a verification of it in your life. Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Let's pray.